The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit by George Smeaton, Professor of Exegetical Theology, New College, Edinburgh. Lecture 6. The Spirit's Regenerating Work on the Individual. Continued. Second, Another view propounded by Augustine makes the sin against the Holy Ghost equivalent to final impenitence. A very large class of writers in all ages have held this view as the simplest and least complicated. The followers of Melanchthon in the Lutheran Church, many of our Scotch divines, such as Guthrie in his trial of a saving interest, Chalmers and others, as well as writers in all countries who have followed Augustine, have accepted this comment as the best. Third, Calvin, dissenting from Augustine's view because it seemed not to do justice to the peculiar expression that this sin shall not be forgiven either in this world or in that which is to come, held that it is resistance to the truth conjoined with malice, though the evidence in behalf of the truth of the Christian faith was such as rendered it impossible to plead ignorance. The thought is supposed to be that this sin is committed before the close of life, and while the person has still a period to live in this world. And it is alleged that the distinguishing mark of this sin is conscious resistance or deliberate opposition to conclusive evidence supplied by the Spirit of God. The men who commit this sin are thought to be convinced of the truth of the Christian religion, and yet oppose and blaspheme it, not so much from sudden passion and the force of temptation as from willful malice. It is argued that while God gives pardon to all manner of sin through the exercise of faith and repentance, the sin against the Holy Ghost is unique and irremissible because conscious resistance is present to the mind and because the voluntary denial of divine truth is combined with hatred and malice. This opinion of Calvin was adopted with a very general consent by the subsequent divines of the Reformed Church. If I were to adduce a catena of Reformed divines, they would be found almost uniformly to follow Calvin's opinion, and frequently with an exaggerated statement, both of the extent of a gracious work of the Spirit on such minds, and of the almost satanic character of their conscious resistance. This comes out in such writers as Marigius, Maastricht, Coxeus, Hornbeek, and others. One guiding principle, however, against excess of statement is supplied by the fact that the evidence furnished by the Spirit and resisted by those who so sin against him is only his testimony, not his work on the heart. For, one, the latter is irresistible, and two, he that hath begun a good work will perform it. Whatever evidence is brought to bear on the mind, it is but rational conviction derived from testimony, not the efficacious change of heart. And this enables us to draw a line between the Lutheran and Reformed exposition of this topic. The Lutheran exposition holds that only the regenerate are guilty of the sin against the Holy Ghost. So Gerhard, Baldun, Hulsman, Kenstedt, and all their eminent divines speak. 
On the contrary, the canons of the Synod of Dort, giving as they do the most admirably correct expression of all the doctrines of special grace, include among the errors which are to be rejected the opinion that the regenerate may be guilty of this sin. It is commonly held that this is the same sin that is referred to by the sacred writers in those other passages of Scripture, Hebrews 6, 4-6, chapter 10, 29, 1 John 5, 16. It is true, Athanasius, Basil, Jerome do not regard these passages in the epistle to the Hebrews and in John as referring to the sin against the Holy Ghost. Calvin says, the Apostle agrees with the Master. I have given the principal opinions on this unpardonable sin and endeavored to distribute them into three classes. For my own part, I incline to Augustine's opinion. At all events, I am convinced that the notion of final impenitence must be taken along with us as a main element in any opinion which may be adopted or maintained on this subject. The Spirit inhabits and replenishes all the mental powers and supplies them with the help which makes them fit for active service. Discussions have long been carried on as to the relation and priority of the understanding and will, and as to the influence which the one may be regarded as exercising on the other. Without complicating our inquiry, as is too frequently done, both on the Calvinistic and Arminian side, with discussions which yield no satisfactory result as to the priority of the understanding and its necessary influence on the will, we may better describe the change which is effected by regeneration as taking effect on all the powers of the soul, and as underlying the exercise of them all. We consider it as displaying its various modes of activity, as so many phenomena in the compass of all the several faculties and all that constitutes the truly Christian life. And we would rather speak of what is natural and intelligible, that is, of the entire soul found in various conditions and moods, than separate the mental powers into so many divisions or compartments, each acting upon the other and opening the gateway for the other. If the entire soul is a unity and only found in certain states of mind, as Witsius was wont to represent it in theology, and as Brown was wont to represent it in philosophy, we may more fitly describe the spirit's operations as taking effect on the whole soul, than limit ourselves to one faculty acting on another. The Restoration of the Spirit takes for granted that he comes in to inhabit the whole man, according to the idea of anthropology with which all scripture is replete and becomes anew for us the indefectible source of light and life and fullness, as well as of perseverance and progressive holiness. The allusions to the inhabitation of the spirit are manifold and various. As a new impelling power, he occupies the human faculties and so pervades them that he is said to dwell in us and walk in us, 2 Corinthians 6.16. 6, 
And the regenerate man is said to have the Spirit of Christ as the consequence of that gracious inhabitation. The Spirit condescends to occupy all the chambers of our hearts and to dwell in them. We may trace the Spirit's work on the mental powers and show that there is a divine influence decisive as to the action of them all. A single glance at the Spirit's operation on the understanding, will, and conscience will suffice to show that in the case of the regenerate, the Holy Spirit is the efficient cause of all their spiritual activity. With regard to the understanding, all spiritual light is derived from the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, enlightening the eyes of their understanding, Ephesians 1.17. When the question is raised, does the illumination belong solely to provenient grace? It is necessary to distinguish. In the first act of illumination... The Spirit acts much in the same way as when he commanded it to shine out of darkness, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. But when the man has received the power of vision, he uses it for the further increase of his knowledge in the way of cooperating grace. The truths which he believed to the saving of the soul had reference to God, to himself, and to the adaptation of the atonement. By the illumination of the Spirit, he acquires wholly different views of all these points, and of God, who is no longer regarded as an indulgent being, nor as a tyrant, but as a gracious Father, all whose perfections are glorified by the atonement. And, as to ourselves, he shows us the ruin and the remedy. The Spirit's operation is not less conspicuous on the will. The principal effect of the Spirit's activity is seen in a new principle of spiritual life, diffused through all the mental powers and inclining the soul to yield itself to Christ in the exercise of faith and subjection, as now enabled or made fit both to will and to do. And as to the conscience, the sanctification of the Spirit contributes to a good conscience. In other words, the conscience purged with the sprinkling of the blood of Christ by the effectual application of the Spirit is committed to the Spirit, who corrects and teaches it, who purifies and comforts it from day to day. Number two. The effectually called become adopted sons and are translated by the power of the Spirit into the family of God, according to the canon that whatever is imparted in the exercise of Christ's grace implies the opposite in our state, by nature, they who were born into God's family were in the opposite family, in the family of Satan, before. It is the more necessary to set this in its proper light, because many do not hesitate to say, under the bias of a false system, that God is universal Father, and that all men are his children. They hold the fatherhood of God in virtue of an alleged unbroken relation formed by creation, and that all men, without exception or distinction, belong to the family of God, much in the same way as Pope expresses it in his universal prayer. Children, forsooth, who only disobey and dishonor their father. No, 
All men by nature belong to a family antagonistic to the family of God, and do the lusts of a father described as a liar and murderer from the beginning. That is a position in harmony with the doctrine of Christ and his apostles. Men cannot, at one and the same moment, be of their father the devil, as Cain was, 1 John 4, 10-12, and as the Jews were, when our Lord declared to them their family, John 8, 44, and be recognized or called the sons of God. The whole doctrine of our Lord and his apostles sets forth that sinners and all unregenerate men are children of the evil one. Though the doctrine of human depravity was not represented by the early Christian writers, especially of the Greek church, with all the accuracy with which they were delineated in aftertimes, it must be admitted that these early writers speak of men as subjected to the evil power with a biblical fullness and accuracy to which modern theology can make no pretensions. They lay emphasis on the power of Satan— The representations given in the early Christian literature as to the sinful power under which the human race has fallen may be described as greatly more full and suggestive than in the literature of the present day. With regard to Satan, that is emphatically true. With the Christian church in post-apostolic times, Satan was a reality and his kingdom a fact with which they daily felt themselves encompassed. The fathers cannot find terms sufficiently strong to delineate the power of Satan, the seductive influence which he wields, and the subjection to his dominion under which men have fallen. In a word, the patristic literature gives the utmost prominence to the terrible power and tyranny of Satan, though by no means greater than the subject warrants, and this subjection is always traced to sin. There is no disposition with them to shrink from representing men as children of the wicked one. In the translation of the individual from the one family to the other, it must be borne in mind that the Spirit is represented in Scripture as the great agent. He makes Christ and his people one for the acceptance of their persons and the renovation of their natures. I refer to this the rather because there are schools of theology which make the work of the Spirit and the commencement of his operations subsequent to the believing reception of Christ. And many, under the spell of a theory from which they never escape, make the participation of the Redeemer's work turn in the last resort on the self-application of the individual, and setting out from the universal call of the gospel They look with suspicion on any express allusion, either to human inability or to the effectual application of the Spirit. But the language of Scripture in reference to this application is so express as to leave no room for a moment's hesitation. Thus, if we consider any aspect of the question, the Spirit is said to shed abroad the love of God upon the heart, which must be taken as the decisive turning point in that application, Romans 5.5. The Holy Spirit is designated the Spirit of Adoption, a phrase which, according to the analogy supplied by every similar expression, means that he is the author of the adoption, 
Romans 8.15. The Holy Spirit is the efficient cause in communicating the blessings of redemption. For the merits of Christ and the efficacy of the Spirit are placed together in the inseparable connection which follows. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 When the gospel produces saving effects, it is said to come not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 The sanctification of the Spirit is inserted by Paul and Peter as the intermediate link between election on the part of God and faith on the part of man. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 The Apostle Peter declares that men are chosen by the separation which the Spirit produces to the belief of the truth and to the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 2. But there is one title of the Spirit which is peculiarly significant and suggestive in this light, the Spirit of Faith, that is, the author of faith, 2 Corinthians 4, 13, by whom we call Jesus Lord and confide in him. The conclusion to which we come from these testimonies is that in the application of redemption, there is but one great agent, not the force of human will, according to the semi-Pelagian opinion, not a double factor, according to the synergistic theory. The sole cause is the Holy Spirit operating through the Word, that is, by the proclamation of law and gospel, by which he enlightens the understanding and inclines the will to receive Christ's finished work. The adoption of sons into which Christians are ushered by the Spirit, Romans 8.15, differs from the privilege of justification in this respect, that it brings the Christian before God in the new relation of a child to a father. Whether we regard this state of sonship with many divines as one of the sides of justification, or as a further privilege into which the believer passes without any interval of time, the adoption of sons, huiothesia, is, in a doctrinal point of view, of the utmost moment in the organism of divine truth because it preserves the equipoise and prevents the juridical idea from being exclusive. As it is set forth by the apostles, we find adoption in three several delineations. First, Paul describes the privilege of sons as contrasted with the position of a servant, Galatians 4.7. Second, John describes adoption in connection with regeneration and with the underlying truth that we are made sons by grace because Christ is the Son by nature, John 1.13, 1 John 3.1. Third, the synoptists, preserving our Lord's words, describe adoption in connection with the restoration of the divine image, Matthew 5.45. We have only to put together that threefold description of the apostles as the complement of each other to give an exhaustive outline of the whole doctrine of adoption. The justified person passing into the relation of a son enters into a relation of love, which we shall delineate in a few particulars. 
first. The foundation of sonship is based in the incarnation of the eternal Son, who became the Son of Man and partaker of flesh and blood, that his people might become the sons of God. It is not some merely inward change produced by the operations of the Spirit that the Father loves. He loves them in his Son, and extends to them the same complacency and favor which rest on him. This is the great objective ground of their adoption, and of their joint participation of that love wherewith he loves the Son, as far as a created being, in virtue of the federal and vital union, can share it. Second, the receptive hand by which Christians are made partakers of sonship and joint participants of the Holy Ghost, according to their measure, is faith and the accompanying union which true faith involves. Third, the adoption common to believers and essentially the same in all has no varying degrees, but one equal degree wherever it is found, and it is perfect at once. Now are we the sons of God. 1 John 3, 2 Hence, no warrant exists for the opinion that there are distinctions or varying degrees in the love of God to his adopted children so far as this objective privilege is concerned. For on each of them rests that divine complacency which rests on the only begotten Son. This adoption carries with it demonstrations of divine love, pledges of paternal care and salutary discipline, as well as foretastes of glory, honor, and immortality, and conformity to the image of him who is the firstborn among many brethren. Fourth, it is a privilege about which the Christian, replenished by the Holy Spirit, is to be left in no uncertainty and doubt, for the Spirit makes intercession with groanings that cannot be uttered, and bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Romans 8.16 On this central point of biblical doctrine, many divines expatiate, some in one interest, some in another, in order, if possible, to find a remedy for those controversies and debates that have long been carried on as to the matter of a sinner's acceptance. Thirsch in the erudite lectures in which he discusses the principles of Catholicism and Protestantism, speaks of this doctrine as furnishing a sort of meeting point and proposes an irenicum on the basis of agreement. He goes so far as to say that the Romish doctrine, antagonistic to the position that all believers are equally accepted on the ground of the Redeemer's merits, is really met by this doctrine of adoption as a common basis of agreement. The doctrine of assurance, or the witness of the Spirit, connected with the adoption of sons, demands a few words of exposition. Romans 8.16 This witness is spoken of as the well-known accompaniment of adoption. And as the result of the Holy Spirit's operations, we cannot suppose that the testimony of the Spirit, of which the Apostle Paul speaks, was an extraordinary inward revelation, imparted only to apostles and to a few specially selected individuals of the apostolic age, as Romish divines are in the habit of affirming, 
but as a common Christian experience. It is not an exceptional gift, but the ordinary criterion and accompaniment of adoption. The notion, however, that he is no true Christian who does not enjoy an ever-shining assurance as an unclouded sun in the firmament has as little to say in its defense. The possibility of attaining assurance and the duty of possessing it, potest et debet, must be inculcated. But beyond that, we are not warranted to go and may not presume to go. The subject of assurance was so identified with faith and the theology of the Reformation as to be well-nigh inseparable and indistinguishable, and the Puritan doctrine may be called in advance to a clearer view. While these divines carefully distinguished it from faith, they contended that, in God's design, and according to the constitution of things, assurance could neither be retained in an unholy walk, nor emerge upon the consciousness apart from the Spirit's testimony and the renovated will. While they directed the eye of faith to the all-sufficiency of the Redeemer, in a way not differing from the Reformers, they suspended assurance neither upon joyous emotions of acceptance alone, nor on the immediate revelation of the Spirit alone, irrespective of the graces of the new creation." And in one of the most precious chapters of the Confession, they have set forth their conclusion. In their day, they furnished a corrective to an excess. An equally great defect required to be supplied in the following century, of which Warburton was a representative divine, when it was necessary to exhibit assurance as an incumbent duty, and as a benefit productive of higher holiness and deeper love, as well as of a consecrated life. Venn represents it as one great cause of Wesley's success, that he urged Christians not to rest without joy in God from receiving the atonement. I cannot omit to notice in this connection the fact that, according to the uniform testimony of history, all success in extending religion and in promoting its revival has been always connected with dependence on the spirit of life, and that the refusal to regard the spirit as the author of conversion and the source of spiritual life puts a church or an individual beyond the pale of the truly Christian. Such a religion has no claim to be classed among evangelical communions. A religion not acting in the spirit as the principle of action can only be the religion of nature. The essential feature of Christianity, according to our Lord's own delineation, is the new birth. And so indispensable is it that without the new nature there can be no evangelical health or progress, nor any interest in Christ and in the blessings of his purchase. To go back to the Lutheran type of doctrine— the eldest daughter of the Reformation, we find that this church was well-nigh stranded when the synergistic controversy took its rise within her pale. Whoever has bestowed any attention on that discussion is aware that nothing but the profound views already lodged in the mind of the Christian community on the vast ruin of the fall 
and on the indispensable necessity of the efficacious grace of the Holy Spirit, at that time saved the life of the Church. The majority maintained, agreeably to Scripture, that the natural man, apart from what the Holy Spirit does in him, can do absolutely nothing, and that he needs to be replenished by the Spirit of life. The Church righted again by adopting the position that the subject of conversion cannot also be a cooperating factor, and that the sole cause of conversion and faith is the Holy Spirit working through the Word, that is, as giving a full proclamation of law and gospel. No Protestant confession has assigned any agency for the human will as a third cause, for to do so were to fall into the logical absurdity of confounding the subject of conversion with its cause. To show the dangers of synergism, we quote a sentence from a German writer. This article, says he, did not fail to exercise a leavening influence both in a forward and backward direction, backward on the doctrine of original sin, forward on that of justification. Schubring. We believe that this is the inevitable consequence, as a few words will show. With regard to the first, the doctrine of original sin, it is obvious that a theory which asserts a synergism, and by this means qualifies the sole operation of the Holy Spirit, does not presuppose a human nature which is subjected to such a moral change as is seen in the issue of the fall. The rationale of every gospel doctrine, and in a particular manner, of the Spirit's operations, is furnished by clear discoveries as to the extent of inherent depravity. And to assume a doctrine of original sin less than coextensive with the essential powers of the soul, though it is left that essence undestroyed and still capable of extrication from the ruin, is to neutralize the provisions of the Holy Spirit's work. Not only so, the effect of synergistic views on man's justification by imputed righteousness is not less disastrous. It is an attempt, as futile as foolish, to accept a surety righteousness and repudiate a surety strength exercised upon man by the omnipotent efficacy of the Holy Spirit when not an argument can be adduced against the one but may equally be directed against the other. And hence Luther said with his usual vehemence, What need of God, what need of Christ, what need of the Spirit if free will can accomplish all? The entire success in the last resort is made to hinge on the individual himself. With others in this age, and they are a very numerous class, all the application of redemption is resolved into the exercise of natural power as the effect of mere moral suasion. The man is thrown back on himself. It seems to exalt and flatter man's nature, but it paves the way for its deeper degradation. Here I may notice that Emeraldus has been followed by not a few in the unhappy distinction which he drew between the physical and moral ability to believe in Christ. He asserted that man had the former, though he had not the latter. 
That notion of ability, copiously imported into America, gave rise to many ill-considered statements which can only be received with caution. Whatever system leaves human nature as it is, to make the best of its resources, or to be wrought upon merely by a class of motives, though the most sublime, but which introduce no new element into fallen humanity, is as little Christian in its essence as it is stale and flat in its conception. If man's soul is not to be elevated from its degradation by the regenerating grace of the Spirit, which alone can raise it, but flattered with its ability and power, if nothing but a class of motives, higher indeed than Plato's, but yet mere motives, is brought to bear upon it, no high conception is formed of the transforming influence of Christianity. That system of moral suasion often imposes on its own advocates. It seems so constructed as to avoid the outward appearance of Pelagianism, because it limits the view merely to the matter of accepting salvation as a gift. But it is only in appearance, and not in essence, that it evades the grosser form of Pelagianism by limiting the language to the reception of a gift. Thus, while there are schools of theology, such as the Puritans and Jansenists, which have endeavored to vindicate the spiritual life as a reality, the views in question contribute directly, and not in their remote effect, to obliterate all the distinction between spirit and flesh, grace and nature. Of the fruits of naturalism, under whatever form it appears, whether it be Pelagianism, Arminianism, Socinianism, Rationalism, we have seen enough in the history of the Church to be convinced that it does not tend with all its high praise of man's ability and dignity, to elevate our race. If all good flows from the Spirit of God down to the very first desire, then dependence and prayer constitute the only fitting attitude. The leading principle which helps us to find our way through all the difficulties of these questions is that the Spirit, in his return to the human heart, anticipates the will, that is, works in us to will at the first moment of conversion and at every subsequent step. The first desire, wish, or resolution to return to God, as well as the first prayer offered with this end in view, is from the Holy Spirit. That all spiritual good emanates from the Spirit of God is a simple formula which keeps every inquirer in this department right. That the Spirit's power and grace precede the will is a maxim to be carried with us, unless we are prepared to ascribe a merit to the first step, or to view the first step as originated on the man's own side. And from the moment that the soul begins to act in spiritual things, it acts with its newly acquired spiritual powers imparted by the Spirit of God. The Spirit's operation always spoken of in the present tense, and as prevenient grace, prompts the soul to cooperate with its newly acquired powers of life. But the expression spiritual powers does not imply a change on man's essential nature or the donation of faculties which were never found in the human mind before, 
but simply a new aptitude and power to comply with what is truly good as derived from the Holy Spirit. With a new will, that is, a will renovated and endowed with a spiritual capacity, the soul becomes active and cooperates with God. We have thus seen that the application of redemption is from first to last by the Holy Spirit. That the faith by which we receive the adoption of sons is the first point, and that this faith in man's heart is only from the Spirit of God, which is the second point. If there be admitted any natural power or capacity in man for the exercise of faith, this necessarily overthrows in the second instance the great doctrine of divine grace that was announced in the first. This doctrine of the Spirit, therefore, really maintains, more than anything else, a church's connection with evangelical religion. And where this is wanting... Nothing can intercept or arrest a church's descent to the lowest depths of naturalism. The Wesleyan system, when it diverged from the path which Whitfield continued to maintain, imbibed most of the Arminian tenets. But it was rescued from the irreparable ruin that had otherwise awaited it by the fact that it unequivocally recognized the Holy Spirit as the sole author of regeneration and of spiritual life. For Wesley said with unhesitating decision, quote, There is no more of power than of merit in man. But as all merit is in the Son of God, so all power is in the Spirit of God. And therefore every man, in order to believe unto salvation, must receive the Holy Ghost. End quote. They conceded too much as to the extent of the Spirit's operations, but they retained what was essential to spiritual life. But the theology that contemplates nothing higher than moral suasion and free will, and which repudiates the supernatural, is necessarily divested of all evangelical power as well as of all permanence and strength. The current objection to the Spirit's work, that man must have inherent strength to believe, because divine wrath rests on those who do not believe, is but a plausible sophism. If it had any meaning, it would be as applicable to the law as to faith, and to the work of Christ as well as to the work of the Spirit. If a man must have power in the one case, he must have power in the other case. He who vindicates the mediator's work against the skeptic or deist cannot without the most flagrant inconsistency take Pelagian ground against the Spirit's work. There is not an argument against the one that is not equally capable of being directed against the other, and he who rejects the one is bound in consistency to reject the other. There is as little interference with human liberty in receiving the work of the Spirit to regenerate as in receiving the work of the Son to redeem and justify. The loss of the Spirit and the restoration of the Spirit, the former the result of the fall and the latter the result of the atonement, have thus passed before us in review. They are the two most momentous facts in the history of man. 
They are associated with the first man's sin and the second man's reparation. The fall left the human heart, once the temple of God, in utter ruin, because the great inhabitant who dwelt in it was under the necessity of leaving the polluted spot. With the Spirit's return to the human heart, on the ground of that everlasting righteousness which Christ ushered in, a new creation began to dawn, and a new kingdom entered which will be dissolved no more. It is of little use, except for the analogy, to recall what might have been had the first Adam fulfilled the conditions imposed on him by his Creator. The human race would have enjoyed without forfeiture the irrevocable aid and presence of the Holy Spirit beyond the hazards of falling. And the same constant presence of the Spirit with all the efficacy of his omnipotent grace, which the redeemed will forever enjoy, would have been transmitted to his descendants of the human family upon a tenure liable to no disastrous forfeiture. The Lord Jesus, the second man, having fulfilled all the conditions which devolved on him as the surety of those whom the Father had given him, conveys to each of them a supply of the Holy Spirit, irrevocably sure and indefectible. The ground of that supply is that the second Adam stood, and in consequence of his finished work, they who are effectually united to him shall never finally forfeit the Spirit's communications. While many grounds and reasons may be mentioned why Christ's disciples never fall away, the principal ground, based at once on divine law and justice, is that the second Adam, by fulfilling the conditions and complying with all the requirements of the law, received as his reward an inexhaustible supply of the Spirit, which should be imparted to all his people and dwell in them forever. The Spirit, accordingly, never permits them finally to depart. He will not abandon the souls which he has regenerated, and which he will use effectual means to reclaim when they are ready, from inward feebleness or listless indifference, to vacillate or waver. He will not suffer them to depart forever, but will renew the exercises of repentance and faith so that they will return to their allegiance. Isaiah 59.21 And continue to have the place of sons in the family of God. The great work of the Spirit with a view to adoption is union to Christ, which, in an objective point of view, constitutes them the sons of God. According to semi-Pelagian theories, the first good begins with the man, and the Spirit of God is only a benevolent well-wisher, but no spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The real deed, and not the vague desire, begins on man's side, though he is described as dead in sin. The grand evil of all these systems is that they insert a legal condition which men have to perform, and all ends at last in the law of works, leaving men to apply to themselves as they best may the benefits which the Redeemer purchased. Humanity is thrown back under a goodly guise upon the principle, do and live. And whether it be the influence of hope or fear, whatever imposes on man an obligation to act from himself as the principle of action, is legal in its inmost germ an enmity to God. 
however concealed under an ostentatious attachment to grace in a one-sided way. In these systems, the gift of salvation is not given to the man, but to his strenuous self-application. But if the application in the last instance rests on man's inherent power, he inevitably relies on his reliance or believes in his belief, and no exercise of ingenuity can extricate him from the vortex of legalism. So much was Luther persuaded of the legalism of all this, that in his treatise on the bondage of the will, in answer to Erasmus, his whole reasoning assumes that it is a mockery to present the finished work of Christ to men who are taught that they possess inherent power, as this undermines the whole. The full development of these systems appears in preaching a dead faith, and their naturalistic tendency expresses itself in the assertion that they do not know a wrong faith, and that there are not two ways of believing. On the contrary, the Bible speaks of a dead faith. The Confessions of the Reformation, drawn from Scripture, delineate faith as a new religious principle of life, awakened by the Holy Spirit without man's active aid. It is an instructive fact that some of the old Lutheran divines, in their apprehension, lest an element of work should be introduced into our title, objected at one time to the designation living faith, but it is said that not one now exists that does not solemnly abjure the error. And no reflecting mind can fail to see that faith must exist as an implanted habit or grace of the Holy Spirit in apprehending the Savior as our righteousness. And very evidently it never does or can exist without thus apprehending Christ. Hence, in all the systems above delineated, in harmony with the dead faith which is propounded, there is uniformly a painful want of reference to the personal Redeemer. They allude to an object in the past in formal contrast with a present object. They preach a salvation in abstract separation from his person, and as little connected with him as if he had never risen. Calvin says such a separation of Christ from his spirit makes him like a dead image or corpse. That man owes his entire renovation to the effectual operation of the Holy Spirit is evident enough from what has been already said. Any synergism or cooperation on man's side in the first instance would necessarily presuppose the existence of powers and faculties in order to that cooperation. But in the explicit statements of Scripture, man is represented as impotent, nay, dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. Thus rendering cooperative action toward his own resuscitation impossible and only an absurd idea. On the contrary, the scripture emphatically describes the divine action of the Spirit as working in us to will and to do. Philippians 2.13. But whether he works in us to will or subsequently works with us when we are enabled to will, the entire glory of regeneration and of conversion belongs to the Spirit of God. There is no middle ground, no intermediate stage between death and life, between conversion and non-conversion. 
for the origin of spiritual life must be instantaneous. It is compared to creation, Psalm 51.10, Ephesians 2.10. It is compared to resurrection, Ephesians 1.19. The man who is the subject of the change is the party on whom creative omnipotence acts to the exclusion of all mental preparations on man's side, for he is only receptive and all merits of congruity of every description. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources, and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things Reformed.